About those things I said, I mean, the way I acted back there. I'm sorry. Let me tell you something. Love means never having to say you're sorry. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. The Glop Culture Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet. And welcome to the Glop Culture Podcast uh, in this uh, in this month of June 2014. Uh, I'm John Podhortz in New York. With me, as always, in uh, lovely California is Rob Long, ricochet head honcho and writer extraordinaire. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. How are you? I'm well. And in Washington, D.C., the bon vivant man of mystery, <laughs> Jonah Goldberg, uh, fresh as a daisy from having written 10,000 words on a book called Capital in 21st Century, which will be appearing in the July-August issue of Commentary, under the title, Mr. Piketty's Big Book of Marxiness, <laughs> Jonah Goldberg. How are you, Jonah? It's great to be here, though I really regret not asking to be paid at a dollar-per-word rate or a per-word rate. But, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. you know I, I, I snookered you because I knew, I knew when I offered you the rate that we will not discuss – but there was no way that well, you that, would that not be able to he write. Pays 10, you more than he pays me. That's exactly what, all. That's what all editors do. That like uh, we just not talk about that. Although I did. Uh, We're not going to talk one, about that. At one point at dinner, uh, I was with a bunch of, uh, of friends of mine. Uh, people work with me in the Southern Foodways Alliance. Um, uh, and uh, there are a bunch of. We're all we've all written freelance stuff, and we were all talking about what we should what, for our little publication. What we should pay, and it's interesting. Everyone's different attitudes about what you get paid per word. It's like some people are like, I mean, a dollar a word is really generous. That's really great. No one would say no to that. And I'm thinking, well, you know, <laughs> but, you, but like everything else, you can't, um, you can't talk about uh, what people get paid. Everyone has a different idea of what broke is, put it that way. But, but uh, speaking, this morning. and speaking of that, <laughs> this nice. is the best wonderful segue. The best story ever is that uh, Hillary Clinton, our uh, former Secretary of State and once and future presidential uh, nominee and uh, former resident of the White House, has begun her book tour with a no-holds-barred interview with ABC News in which asked about um, uh, Bill Clinton's uh, speaking fees um, and the and the fact that uh, – Somehow, between the years 2001 and 2013, the Clintons have somehow managed to enrich themselves to the tune of, are you ready for this, $111 million they have made jointly since 2001. This is, by the way, with Hillary in the Senate and then at the State Department, so obviously the bulk of the earnings came from Bill. $111 million in earnings. Hillary explained the need for the money that the couple needed by saying that when they came out of the White House, they were, quote, dead broke, unquote. And as, uh, as some hardy uh, Googlers discovered uh, almost instantly upon the word of this uh, spreading this morning, 
Um, they were so dead broke that in uh, November of 1999, they purchased a house in Chappaqua, New York, for the total of $5.9 million. Well, two- that would, you know, that makes you run out of money. Well, you may may make you run out of money, but as it happens, in the year 2000, Bill Clinton signed a book contract uh, for his memoir, My Life, to the tune of a $15 million advance. That would be $1.5 million. So wait, Assuming so- that he got a third of it up front, there's the $5.9 million right there. And, of course... Uh, upon leaving the White House, Bill Clinton did receive a pension as president in the total of $200,000 a year and was collecting a – had been collecting a pension as the former governor of Arkansas of about $42,000 a year while Hillary was collecting a Senate salary of $170,000 a year, meaning that their base earnings – So they had cash flow. That's what you're saying. Were four hundred thousand dollars a year absent the fifteen million dollar advance, and the fact that almost instantly, about two weeks after he left the White House, he started giving speeches for a hundred thousand dollars a pop. So, and, yet, and yet, none of that. Here's the weird thing: none of that adds up to one hundred and fifteen or one hundred eleven million dollars, right? No, but that's the, only wait, the first wait, day. Wait, wait, that's wait, only wait. the first day. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, what I mean, there's the book and the speeches, and everything's about the book and the speeches, and and that stuff. It's his relationship. To private equity billionaires, especially one, Ron Burkle, who was a special as a private equity billionaire in based in L.A. Uh, of, of, of of unsavory character, we'll put it that way. Um, and the boondoggles they get, and these guys get, including you know Al Gore is one of them too. The same deal. Um, and the, and the special arrangements they have, and the, and the little equity g- gifts they get. Um, that's where that's where you get seriously rich. I mean, right, well, I'm not well, saying Al, they, I, Al I'm Gore, not agreeing with Hillary that they were broke, yeah. but but that's how you get seriously rich, which is what they are now. Right. And um and and for her to swan around, swan around for her to for her to <laughs> claim poverty, like you see her like in a, in a little cartoon of Hillary Clinton with her empty pockets, you know, pulling the pockets out with a sad face, you know, um, is sort of sure. It, it, it's not just lying. I mean, it's oh, not just oh, wrong. By the way, by the way, she yeah. also said that you know they were having trouble meeting the mortgage payments on their on their houses. That is to say, the house in Chappaqua and her mansion in D.C. Because of course they need two mansions because, as you know, they love each other. They don't. They love each other, <laughs> and they have a marriage, is what I can tell. As I said yeah. on Twitter this morning. That most precisely resembles the marriage between Maurice and Andorra on Bewitched, <laughs> where, if you remember, <laughs> yeah, they you basically were together, they yeah. were never quite together. They were never they were never really divorced, but they were never quite together. And he would sort of like pop in, pop out. She would pop in, pop out. And when they saw each other, they would kind of go, "Hello, Andorra." <laughs> Hello, Maurice. Well, there's a story and that they were that each other. when she was a secretary of state. Yes, um, that they were they, they they found themselves as a surprise. This is I think written about it's rather incredulously by the New York Times. Um, <laughs> they were both in like Buenos Aires or something, or Rio or Sao Paulo, or they're in it's Brazil. Like Bogota, yeah, it was somewhere. In, yeah, it was somewhere in, in the, and, in the uh, southern yeah, hemisphere. They're both there. Just they didn't they didn't know they were both there. They just both discovered, hey, we're here. But they couldn't get together that night because it was just too difficult to arrange with their separate entourages. 
Yeah, they're you know they had their entourages and uh, and you know Bill, Bill Clinton needed to spend quality so time yeah. with Ron Burkle. Exactly. Yeah, I, said, like, I always tell my daughter, you know, like when she needs to do something like really mundane, like tie her shoes or blow her nose or something like that, and she says, "I'm sorry, Daddy, I just didn't get around to it." And I'm like, you know, sweetie, the busiest people in the world have time to blow their nose or tie their shoes. You definitely do too. The thing is, if they wanted to get together, oh yeah, they have the teams. <laughs> they have teams of people to solve <laughs> the problems of getting them together. The, th- the thing is, is that they, the their whole arrangement is to have teams of people to avoid getting them together. That oh. is the standing order on the deck for years. Uh, 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 you know, I write this column for National Review every two weeks. And it's hard because it's kind of like a, a verbal cartoon. I got to come up with a, a um, you know, kind of this comic premise and then write about it, which is always a disaster. And so when a I come, disaster, come one, a disa- I'm sorry, we have to interrupt here by saying that Rob's column, The Long View, is yeah. easily the funniest long running column appearing in but, but the, in the, is, the English language, well, as far nice. as I can tell. It's been well, what, agree 15 years. It's been 15 uh, years. 20. You write 20, 20 years. It's been you write 25 of them a year. Or twenty of them a year. Twenty, yeah. It's 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 astonishingly creative. The, the goal, and I'm not listening to you. Put this right. down. Right. Well, thank you. Now, but the goal on. is you, you want to come up with a with a with a with a franchisable idea, right? You want to come up with something that you can repeat, so that on 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 weeks that the issues that you really don't have a new idea, you can just use an old idea and then just refresh it. So I, you know, I do. Kim Jong-un's Twitter feed. And then the other one I do is this conversation between Hillary Clinton's lawyer and Bill Clinton's lawyer. And the premise is that they've only spoken through lawyers. They decided <laughs> in 1998 to speak only through attorneys. Uh, and they, they negotiate every tiny little thing about their lives. Um, and the attorneys always say, you know, it is thank, you know, it's because of this, uh, the good, good count, you know, they're, they've wisely turned over their marriage to counsel. Um, that we managed to preserve the loving and deeply um, affectionate and um, longstanding relationship that between our clients. Um, and the whole point is, of course, that they 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 do not love each other. It is not a marriage. It's something weird. We all know how, we all have to pretend that it's not. In the same way, we have to pretend that they were broke. I mean, that, that's a, that's the problem with the Clintons. It's like it, they force us to. We are the children. In, of this bad marriage, forced to pretend that they're that it's all working. Like we're in the back seat of the car as they're driving silently to the, uh, you know, to the family event, and we're smiling this fake wooden smile. Like, yeah, okay. What 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 other what other stories about yourselves do we have to believe? <laughs> including you know, the, including that including they sat there at the kitchen table just like ordinary Americans with a pile <laughs> of bills, and oh, I guess i got to go make some speeches, honey. Oh, oh and by the Heading way... Heading out to Costco were... for ramen noodles. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> beans and cheese. And... <laughs> she, was, she was really worried, she says in the ABC interview, about paying for Chelsea's education. Uh, and we all have to pretend that's true. Who, we, uh, we're not we allowed to say have the to truth. Pretend. We are allowed to say the truth. And I think this... this Unforced error of Hillary's at the very beginning of her book tour is a mark of why people should understand that she is not invulnerable and that she is not inevitable. She is a politician, a political candidate like any other. She ends up getting interviewed and she makes dumb mistakes. Who was it who went before the, you know, the the congressional committee and said, what difference does it make? 
about Benghazi? Was it, you know, was it the world's greatest politician or a politician who uh, had, leaves something to be desired in the self-knowledge and how she might come, be coming across department? And, well, you know, we are now two, we're two and a half years away from the election in 2016. And she now actually has to run for president. She has to run for president. Well, she doesn't have to. This is one of my great No, but she has to. She's going to run. If she's going to run. All right. I see. But this is one of my great gripes is there's, you know, you watch that exit interview, and we've talked about this before, but you watch that exit interview she did with Barack Obama for 60 Minutes. And, you know, look, I have, you know, I I got over, you know, I I got past my Obama fatigue a long time ago, and I I have a full-blown case of Obama Epstein bar. But, um... (laughs) At the same time, the, 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 the simple fact is you can understand why people want to listen to Barack Obama. I mean, I don't, but you can understand why other people do. He's got a forceful, charismatic personality. You can certainly understand it with Bill Clinton. You can understand it with lots of politicians. Hillary Clinton has never in her entire life had a compelling personality. And I, I, don't, I simply do not believe the, the, the trolls over at Media Matters and these other places that act as if she's a charismatic person. Um, I think they're all lying. I think they project onto her things that she does not actually, qualities she does not actually have. You know, my line for her for years has been, she's the woman who tells you there's no eating in the library. And the idea that she is this great politician, I think, is one of the great manufactured myths of Washington. She's a good bureaucratic player. But, you know, but here's the problem. She went for office once and she only did it because she was the victim of of a crappy marriage. (laughs) <laughs> well, but 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 yeah, but but she's 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 got them all hoodwinked. I mean, no, no right, one, right. no one's got them no all one's going to say, no one's going to say uh, uh, on her side. Going to say uh, by by the way, on her side, I'm referring to the entire American media. No one's going to say uh, that was a little bit. Yeah, you went a little too far there with the. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not really? sure. We'll see. Again, two and a half years, and I here's the good news. For those who do not wish to see this uh, coronation take place, if you consider the political facts of the last two elections, we know we've been spending now a couple of years talking about uh, the national difficulties of the Republican Party, right? It hasn't won a majority in five of the last six elections and so on. And, you know, its base is aging and it's too white and all of that. Okay, fine. But the high watermark of the Democratic Party will arguably be the 2008 election, right? So Barack Obama gets 69 million votes in 2008. He gets this, you know, astonishing turnout. He gets this wild youth vote. He gets this, you know, astounding turnout in the, you know, in the African-American community. Now, and John McCain gets 60 million votes, right? So in 2012, Obama loses 4 million of his voters, Right, it goes from sixty-nine to sixty-five, and Romney gets a million more voters than McCain. Goes from sixty to sixty-one. Now, what this means is that there is a gap of four million votes between these two. You know, at current under current conditions, there is a gap of four million votes. Now, this is a very astounding thing to think about because in nineteen eighty-four. When Ronald Reagan won, won re-election, right. there was a gap of almost 10 million votes and 20 percentage points. Okay, the Democratic Party needed a third party in 1992 to help Bill Clinton 
get elected president with only 43% of the vote. This, the point I'm trying to make is that if you look at all these numbers, what you see is what happened to Barack Obama and Barack Obama may be a total anomaly, a historical anomaly. The parties are completely evenly mm-hmm. divided. It's a 50-50 national race without exogenous factors like right. having the first African-American president who is of particular appeal to young people. We're going to have a 70-year-old woman running in the Democratic Party in all likelihood. And we will have – I don't know who we'll have, but we may have – for all we know, we'll have a 43-year-old Cuban-American running in the Republican Party, in the Republican primary, who will have different kinds of appeal than previous Republican candidates. So you're saying it's a toss-up and that little things like this and a kind of an out-of-touch moment from a, from a Democrat can hurt as much as an out-of-touch moment for a Republican? I don't see why not. I mean, I'm talking about with the American people. Now, obviously, it won't necessarily, because of the defensive blocking tackle habits of the mainstream media, you will not have the kind of pylon you have with Romney and the and the 47% or something like that. But this is an error that's not all that dissimilar from Romney and the 40 I mean, but if you think about... It, isn't it also revealing, though? I, I mean, it, what it says about her more than... I mean, to, to me, that's what... Right. It, because she, 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 she believes this. Well, another way, hold on. So, do I don't know if that? she believes it. I, don't I think she, she thinks that. that these are things that... The focus group that is America that she is trying to appeal to wants to hear. And the problem is is that she doesn't understand that there are only so many things you can say about a product before people realize they can't be true about the product. Like you can't say this pizza will cure herpes, right? <laughs> right you can right. say this pizza tastes good, but you can't say <laughs> – Hillary Clinton can't say she can't um, cure herpes. I was broke, right? You know, she can yeah. – people want to hear about people who have struggled – and she's got Elizabeth – she hears Elizabeth Warren's footsteps behind her and she wants to connect with these, these kitchen table kind of issues. And the problem is is that it does not occur to her because she's a sucky politician. I will return to that. <laughs> um, it does not occur to her that just simply because she says something, people will think it's automatically true. And I don't think that people you – know, it reminds me remember, – remember that awesome – my favorite moment from the 2008 campaign where Michelle Obama was meeting with – uh, working class wives in Zane, working class women in Zanesville, Ohio, and she went on a riff about how, um, you know, that there's more to life than simply the business sector. She and she and Barack turned down great paying jobs on Wall Street and in white shoe law firms because they cared so much about giving back and and social justice. And so the lesson she had for these. Women making thirty-five thousand dollars a year, wearing acid-washed jeans, t- you know, jackets, right. um, and shopping at Walmart, was don't take those jobs at those hedge funds. <laughs> yeah, don't right. go to those big yeah. Wall Street firms. Right. <laughs> right. Whatever you do, you know, <laughs> when Lazar Frere calls, yes. don't take the call. Don't take the yeah. other. <laughs> we should do this. Like, in a, in, in, she was actually saying, you know, in a weird way, I, I admire you. That's what she was saying. Right? That's right. right. In a weird way. In a weird way, I am here to to actually listen to you, which is strange. Um, speaking of listening, I do need to break in here and say, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome. This is the Glop Podcast. Uh, if you are listening to this for many, uh, many, many times and you are a member of Ricochet.com, we thank you. We're happy to have you with us. Um, and uh, and we'll see you in the comments. If you are uh, listening to this and you are not a member of Ricochet, you really now is really the time for you to go to ricochet.com and join. 
You not only get this podcast, you get a bunch of other podcasts, you get a bunch of other goodies. We have three tiers of membership from the more practical Calvin Coolidge level to the uh, slightly more elevated uh, Margaret Thatcher level to the uh, – obviously the pinnacle, the Ronald Reagan level. Each has its own little uh, benefits. Um, here's the thing. We, there, this, this podcast is listened to by tens of thousands of people. We have a slightly less than that as members of Ricochet. If we could get to something like half of that, if half the people who listen to this podcast became members of Ricochet, we would be in not Fat City, we, but we wouldn't be broke. And when I say broke, I mean broke in the sense that traditionally we mean broke. Uh, so I don't mean broke as in we have $100 million not the, in the bank. the new broke. Not the new broke. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, oh, uh, uh, a bullet. So please go ricochet.com and join. Yes, go ahead. Uh, this just in, of course, in 2000, Hillary Clinton also signed an $8 million book deal, bringing the book deal total for Bill and Hillary during their dead brokenness to $23 million. But you know, so they, they had I, to I just, write the books though, John. That's the thing. They had they, to write the books. Did they, Rob? <laughs> they had to write the books. Well, well wait. Congratulations, because that would make you know, you know, one of the greatest lines in all of American colonizing history was, uh, you remember that <clears throat> Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House in the 1980s, was undone and brought down because he uh, circumvented the uh, congressional rule against uh, speaking fees by getting people to buy copies of a book that he had, quote, written, unquote, in the tens of thousands so he could get royalties instead of speaking fees, royalties being permitted, speaking fees being uh, against Senate rules. And somebody, at, somebody asked George Will if he had read Jim Wright's book, and George Will said, I make it a policy not to read books that their authors themselves have not read. <laughs> and now, I should say, I, I should assume say, that Hillary Clinton has read Hard Choices, yeah. but uh, I know for a certitude that she did not write Hard Choices. That Ted Widmer wrote Hard Choices. That uh, uh, Barbara Feynman wrote her uh, previous book, whatever it was called, My Life, My Struggle, My Happiness, My Husband, My Child, my life, my lack of whatever. Money. What was it called? Personal History, History of my, Personal my, Living History. Yeah. Living History as opposed yeah, to Personal History. Was was, my quote unquote life. Right. Um, so, <laughs> my life on $5 a day. So uh, anyway. Down and so. out in Washington and New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, now – now, hey, can could, we, can I, yeah. point of personal privilege. Uh, Please. As my, um, my, my lovely Who wrote bride, your books, Jonah? I wrote my books. I, I know some people, <laughs> I, I know some people who, are, uh, who are columnists who don't necessarily write their own books or columns, but we don't need to get into that. I was not referring to anybody in this conversation for the record. But um, I, my I, wife... If I could my, find somebody to do it, I would. Do, I would but go ahead. <laughs> my lovely wife actually does this for a living and writes books for politicians. And some politicians, they don't write the first drafts, but they kind of do kind of rewrite um, the copy so they feel like they have some ownership of it or they heavily edit it. I can see Hillary doing some heavy editing, you know, to take out all the interesting or important or significant (laughs) things. Um, But uh in fairness, you know, some politicians, I mean, it's been interesting because my, my wife has done this for a lot of politicians. Um, everyone's got their own style. Some people completely phone it in and then other people are actually really, really engaged. Um, my understanding is that Mitt Romney actually wrote his book and it reads like it. Yeah, I believe that. 
He also wrote his convention speech, so that was really good, 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 go, good going there. <laughs> well, yeah, that I mean, was really a, that was a triumph. Um, <laughs> so I think I think perhaps we need to move on to the story of the month, uh, which is, of course, um, X Men. No, uh, the story of the month is uh, is the uh, strange case of uh, of Private First Class or Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. Um, of, of Idaho, who was of course swapped for five um, extremely dangerous yeah. Taliban commanders, uh, and in uh, a mark that uh, while people may find uh, Barack Obama interesting and he has a dynamic personality, m- much of his political, the political, the un- unparalleled political media communication skills that he showed, particularly in 2008, are now gone. But Obama decided to take this mystifying um, victory lap with uh, Bergdahl's parents, knowing full well that there were highly problematic aspects of Der- Bergdahl's own service and his disappearance and the opinions of people in his own platoon um, about his behavior and the odd behavior of his uh, father. And, um, and, of course, the ultimate question, which is, uh, the safety and security of the United States in releasing from Guantanamo Bay, arguably the five people who should be released last, if you're mm-hmm. if you are going to close Guantanamo Bay and your purpose is to uh, maintain the safety and security of the United States against renewed terrorist threat. So here we are. It's as we're talking. It's about um, uh, nine days after this um, Rose Garden. A victory lap, and I think it has it's fair to be to one of the weirdest Rose Garden events ever, right? Ever. And the guy and since, the beard. It, since at least Teddy Roosevelt sacrificed fifty oxen. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, that made sense. <laughs> the, the well, it was to ball. That was the weird thing. Was it was Pashto? Pashto. Pashto. He was speaking. Yes, he spoke Pashto. And then a little then Arabic, the, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, there's always a little Arabic and everything. Um, and then as they and they walked away, there was that weird thing where Obama put his arm around them both as they walked away. It, it was it was so weird that you knew at that moment something was up, right? I mean, everyone. I mean, just watching that, you thought, wait a minute, something was weird. Something's weird here, right? Why right. why did they not think something was weird here? Anyway, so I I'm think sorry. I I, that's you. absolutely no, it's absolutely true. So so. You know, there are all sorts of related and complicated questions here, including um, the kind of uh, stages of grief that Obama supporters and, you know, and media toadies have been going through where they had to acknowledge at the beginning that something very odd had gone on here and then immediately leapt to the notion that Republicans were only trying to spin this and they were hurting people and this was terrible and what about, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, leading then to the New York Times a uh, week after all of this happening, uh, doing an article that basically defamed Bergdahl's platoon uh, in an effort to make the case that Bergdahl himself might have had some emotional reason to go on walkabout and desert his post and cause a month-long yeah. you know, search for him that people in that Platoon and other people in the region in Afghanistan think might have contributed to the deaths of six Americans. There's some question about how much that is true, or how many of them might have, 
you know, been 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 killed in direct pursuit of of Bergdahl. But there is no question that that uh, the media tried to find desperately find any angle on which not yeah, to the, grasp the, a few good well, men. Yeah. My fa- really my cool. favorite angle on, to the to that end was uh, Think Progress, which I would say at least three days a week crosses the line into self parody. Um, and they had this great thing where they said the headline was, "Did Bo Bergdahl desert the U.S. Army, or did the U.S. Army desert Bo Bergdahl?" <laughs> and the argument uh-huh. being that. He had a more compassionate and sympathetic army would have spotted his problems earlier, and he really they left him with no choice but to go and join the Taliban. It's <laughs> um, just great now, stuff. It's you not can't just make it up. right. So this is also part of the difficulty here because I think the more you hear about this, you understand. You know, this is an extremely complicated situation. If it is not that he specifically chose to desert in order to go to the Taliban or whatever that he, you know, that he was suffering through, you know, emotional disability, difficult, incredibly difficult conditions under which he was living and all of that. Now, there are also, as it happens, at least about a year later, about a hundred, you know, there were about, there were, I don't know how many, uh, 80,000 Americans or something serving. And he was the only one who found it necessary to say, I think I'm going to walk to China now. Or I may walk to the hills of Pakistan now. And the danger here is that the president as commander-in-chief, one of the things that he cannot do as a simple matter of sort of the Hippocratic Oath and above all do no harm is to make it appear as though people who go AWOL are going to be treated exactly the same as soldiers who serve – with honor and supporting their and and following the oaths that they take voluntarily in the United States military now as no one is being drafted. So it is an entirely voluntary act to go into the military and to take these pledges. And I'm not, I, I'm not in the military. I don't gain say the horrors of the possible experience that Bo Bergdahl have, but you had or might've had, but you cannot under any circumstances Make it appear as though yeah. if you if you de- if you a desert or go AWOL or b you defect that well, somehow so if you're, if you're you will be treated a, yeah. with with the same care consideration and support and special treatment that you would give to a POW or to you, anybody, but that you, you wouldn't can't. give, but that you wouldn't give, or at least this president would not give to a to a, a, a sitting United States ambassador in Libya. I mean, it's just we didn't go back. We didn't go back to them, right? I mean, the president is extraordinarily dangerous for military for all sorts of things. Not only combat readiness, and but you know uh, the the morale of people in the U.S. military who go in the military. And one of the first and most important things that is drummed into them is you may not desert. You cannot desert. You will. <laughs> you, you will be. You will be. You know, considered a a villain because soldiers so, cannot soldiers and sailors and marines okay, and, right. and airmen all cannot right. make are, these decisions okay. for themselves. So is that the problem? Was that the worst thing? No, because, well, I, because here's I'm the, here's the thing. Like, thing that oh, wait, wait. Don't even talk. I was going to say, like, there's a, there's a weird prism effect with this with this event. 
and that it has all these different things that you can kind of get upset about. Like I'm sort of upset at them arguing that well, we, we, we can't leave one of our own. We got to go back. I mean they didn't feel that way in Benghazi. Oh, we can't make it. We, uh, it's too far. We don't know where we, they are. And, and, and really, at this point, what does it matter? And, dude, that was two years and ago. And there's a new That's Game a, of Thrones on tonight. Yeah, that, so, all sorts know. of reasons why, <laughs> why we, could, we had to leave people in Libya to die. And now suddenly we're like, well, wait a minute. I mean, we could get the – we won't leave anybody back in Libya. And then – I mean in, in Afghanistan. And then the strange argument that I remember because I'm old now. I remember uh, vividly for the Iran-Contra hearings the idea that you would negotiate. You would negotiate. With terrorists is was it was anathema, right? I mean, I remember that in 1988 during the campaigns, as we're talking about old campaigns, uh, Dan, the famous Dan Rather George H. W. Bush interview, where the substance of it was, how could you negotiate with terrorists? You made us hypocrites in the eyes of the world, uh, <laughs> because that was considered the worst thing to possibly do by the liberal media, some of whom are still in the liberal media. And now it's well, you know. What's well, most of them are working for the Obama administration. Let's let, yeah, let's be yeah. fair. Let's be fair now. Go ahead. So anyway, so just, to me, there's just, and then there's the other. That he's a he's a deserter, or he went AWOL, or or the, the platoon was bullying, or whatever it was, or they didn't like it because he smoked a pipe, which was the weird obsessive detail. <laughs> and he read weekend. books. And he and read, he read books. books. I didn't he read books. books. I mean, the, the the class arguments in that piece, the New York Times piece are so fantastic because they really say. They didn't like it because he smoked a pipe rather than chew tobacco, which they all did. Like, oh, I'm sorry. He was just an elevated, elevated sensibility there. That was his problem. Yeah. I mean, um, go ahead. I'm sorry, John. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I, Rob, I agree entirely. There are just so many different angles here, right? There's also, like, you know, the actual policy of, you know, I mean, I mean they, they lied about his health. They traded the five worst guys in Gitmo precisely because they wanted the five worst guys out so they could close Gitmo. There are a lot of different angles here, but I, I think, you know, it's very rare I say something like this. I think Mara Liasson basically has the best, most generous explanation for why the White House screwed up. I mean, I think there are a lot of perfectly plausible, less generous explanations, but the most generous one you can come up with is that these guys insist on overspinning yeah. everything as Obama is awesome. And... Instead, what they should have done is they should have had Ben Rhodes come out at a three o'clock in the afternoon State Department presser and simply say, we've made this trade. No, they had to do it as a Rose Garden ceremony where they're bringing a hero home. They couldn't say that this is a complicated situation, but we bring home people. Um, they had to say, no, he served with honor and distinction. Right. They couldn't say we screwed up. We locked out Congress. We had to say, oh, no, he was sick and we were we made the gutsy call. And we seize the opportunity on every one of these fronts. They 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 so they spun to the point of lying in order to make Obama look awesome. And then with that idiotic thing that Obama said in Belgium, where he basically said this was all manufactured. This was essentially just another phony crisis or phony scandal. Um, they make it sound like anybody who has a problem with these things is a jerk or a partisan hack. Um, you know, it's amazing. E.J. Dion has this classic Dion column this week where he says, where he has to sort of check the boxes of all the ways the White House screwed up. But it's all of these sort of to be sure they could have done this better, yeah. to be sure they could have done that better. But the only the truly shocking right. thing yeah. was how partisan the Republicans were. You know, and I think the reaction to this, why the White House misjudged this, is they've been bull doing this sort of cry yeah. wolf 
exaggeration crap for so long that people are sick of it, and then they can just tell with this thing where they have. I mean, there used to be a rule that you don't put a guy next to the president of the United States in a ceremony at the Rose Garden who looks yeah. like he just crawled out of a spider hall with Moto <laughs> right, Omar, right? Right, right, and, right. And you don't have unless a, his name you know, is actually Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, he does not like, stand next like, to the president. Advanced yeah. people, I mean, like, advanced people used to do a certain amount of due diligence where they said, okay, so you're going to be standing next to the leader of the free world. What are you going to say? And, <laughs> right. But I and think, usually, actually, they, usually say, when the guy says, well, they I was used to say, you're going to say this and hand him a card. Yeah, right. You know, I I think, think, it was just, it was such hack, hackery masquerading yeah, as arrogance. Yeah, but the, the arrogance is not theirs. I, I mean, I am now firmly convinced the decision to do this, to have that Rose Garden event and to spin it the way that it was spun goes right to the president himself. He didn't have to do that event. And I think he thought that it was a good idea. And I think this yeah. is – I think the last six months, um, as I've said in a series of columns over the last week – he has gotten punch drunk. I mean, since well, October, when, when, when everything went bad with healthcare.gov, his political judgment is off. He doesn't know what, how, to, how to talk about things. He, he reopens dead controversies or you know, controversies that he was trying to kill by saying things like, we've now learned that there was not a smidgen of corruption at the IRS. He didn't have to say that. He volunteered it. He said it reopen the issue. He keeps reopening issues. And in this case, he did himself this damage. He didn't have to say what he said in Brussels. But, so he didn't have to is, say he makes no, but he did not have to call no, but Bo Bergdahl, is, a man, a, you know, a man serving his country, a child, which is what he did in Brussels by saying, I, I make no apologies for this. This was somebody's child. Well, the six people who were killed in Afghanistan, possibly because of, they were also somebody's children. And what's more, if they were killed in pursuit of him and he deserted his post, uh, they yeah, were better just... children. They were more important children. They were noble children, and he would be an ignoble child. And this is a ridiculous way to talk about men in the military so who are is, putting their lives on the line every single day. So it's your appalling. Point is, your point is that he's punch drunk, right? But I have an alternative theory. He's dumb. <laughs> and I don't mean stupid because he's intelligent, but he's dumb. He's dumb the way and I, I and I say that and I say this all my he's dumb in exactly the way that I would be dumb were I <laughs> were the we all so benighted as to find me in the Oval Office as President of the United States. Dumb because he can't shut up, and not shutting up is a is a, a sign of a dumb person who's smart, who's intelligent, but dumb, doesn't know how the world works. He's dumb because he thinks that uh, a couple fell swoops of some media – because he believes that every – all the people who pet and coo him, petted him and cooed him are, 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 uh, are uh, thoughtful and are correct. He's dumb because he hasn't lived in the world enough to know uh, you don't win. Everything's not a home run uh, just because you say it is and that you cannot talk your way into success. That's, that's, that's a sign of a dumb person. And I, you know, I had this argument this weekend with a friend of mine who's a you know, big Obama supporter. And, and, and he said uh, – I said, so what, I was saying, yeah, he's, you know, he's a ridiculous president and all that stuff. What upsets you the most? I said to him. And he said, well, you know, I just don't like the fact that you know, he, he, the Republicans never gave this guy a chance. You know, they obstructed. They never gave him a chance. They never blah, – blah, blah, all that stuff. And I said, OK, well, what, what item 
in his uh, agenda did he not get? What was obstructed? So the problem with Obama isn't that he didn't get stuff. It's that he got everything he wanted. The problem with Obama isn't what people say about him. It's what he says about himself. All the errors are, uh, are, are unforced. They're all own goals. <laughs> this guy is dumb. We have a dumb president. We just have to make, you know, we have to make do. It's better than having a broke president. Uh, that's for sure. Which well, I, I'm not sure I accept that. But I do think that it is very important at this moment. That I mention that the Glop podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers and featuring Audible's unique WhisperSync technology that works across almost any device. Start a book on your Kindle and finish it on your iPhone. It's magic. For our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. So uh, we, uh, in tribute to Audible.com, now need to make some suggestions to our listeners of books that they might want to choose as their free audio book. I got one. Please. I got one that's that's, uh, really kind of, it's actually newsworthy in a weird way. It's set in Naples in 1944. It's about the American – sort of allied occupation, but mostly American occupation of Naples. By the time the allies got to Naples, the, the, the actual units that were there had been um, battle-scarred and tested and, and they've been through, they've been through hell. They, they were from North Africa. They had fought in North Africa. Then they had fought uh, on the shores of Italy and they clawed their way into Naples. Naples itself was a mess. It was one of the world's worst places, and the conduct of American uh, um, servicemen and women and the places – because there were – that service women, but there were nurses and everything uh, – was questionable in a lot of ways. But these were people who had been through a gigantic war, and it's what happens. And it's called The Gallery. It's by John John Hornburns. I had to turn away just to – I forgot his middle name. John Hornburns a writer, died uh, a few years after the war of alcoholism, which is so Jonah. That's uh, something to look forward to. And, uh, <laughs> and it's great. It's really good and it's kind of gripping and sad and, and uh, written beautifully and, um, and it's, a, it's an, unvarnished, an unvarnished tale of, uh, of, um, you know, of what happens when you know, allies occupy a city. Uh, and at no point does anybody um, speak Pashto or walk away from their job. At no point do they desert or go AWOL. Um, it's interesting. I like it. Okay, I'm done. Jonah, do you have one? Um, I didn't know I was supposed to be prepared for anything like this, but, um, so I, I, I'm frantically searching on my, I mean, I have lots of books that I could recommend, but I don't know if they're on Audible and I don't want to get crosswise with our paymasters. Um, so why don't you do yours and come back to me while I'm searching Audible on my phone to make sure that they actually carry the books I want to recommend. Okay, well, I would be uh, delighted to say that my, I have a surprising uh, and out-of-politics uh, out choice, um, uh, which is uh, a really stunning memoir that I read earlier this year by the famous children's book author Beverly Cleary, who wrote the Ramona books and the Henry Huggins books. Yeah, Beezus and, like. and Ramona, right? Beezus and Ramona and Daughter Henry Huggins and... Well, she wrote a memoir about 15 years ago. She's still, she's still alive. She's like 98 years old. She wrote a book called My Own Two Feet, which is a memoir of her 
uh, time as an 18-year-old girl living in Portland, Oregon, when she left uh, her, her parents who had fallen into desperately hard times um, because of the Depression. She was an only child and went to They only college. had $100 million? They're yeah, broke. exactly, exactly. Uh, and she, she, they somehow managed to finagle her way into a community college um, at just outside Los Angeles where she was going to live with a cousin. And it's the story of this young girl's education, uh, coming to consciousness as a possible writer, uh, learning about the wider world, learning that one could be happy when one's parents were unhappy, and then eventually uh, moving to San Francisco, uh, becoming a librarian on a military base as World War II broke out, um, and meeting and marrying the man that she would be, who would be her husband for the next uh, 50 years. It's a really stunning, plain spoken American story. It's very beautiful. It's called My Own Two Feet, and I strongly recommend it. Okay. Um, I've got two books, because um, they sort of go hand in hand. One, I, The reason I've got two is because one I haven't really read past the introduction yet, um, and one I read a while ago. Uh, the one I read a while ago is a book by a guy named Matt Ridley called The Rational Optimist, um, and he makes the thesis that uh, as the late Julian Simon used to say, that human beings are the ultimate resource and that we actually can fix problems rather than just simply um, live under sort of a command and control approach that government says um, we have to throw a wet blanket on the economy. And then a new book out by a really impressive guy at the Manhattan Institute named Robert Bryce. Um, he's got a fantastic book, at least it seems like it's fantastic, called Smaller, Faster, Lighter, Denser, Cheaper. They're both on Audible. I tend to not like listening to fiction-type things on audio just because um, I do it in such discrete chunks. And so I like to sort of do very sort of information and insight-rich books rather than sort of fiction books, which I prefer to sit on a back porch reading. Um, but but uh, both are sort of – this is a big thing of mine these days is how human beings are actually, you know uh, – need to sort of think of the world's problems as problems to be solved rather than things that simply empower bureaucrats to make the problems um, grow at a slightly less faster rate. Mm-hmm. Well, so these are, our, these are our recommendations for the month. Um, for a free audiobook of your choice, either our choices or any choice that you might want to make, go to audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet that's audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet now uh now that we've talked about all this serious stuff now it's time to talk about like you know silly idiotic stuff like for example uh game of thrones i just want to share with you the following thing which is that i think this has been an extremely good season of game of thrones i did not see the most recent episode uh i did Last night, and uh, I'm glad I didn't. And I'd like to tell you why I'm glad I didn't, because I really liked it, but I know from the, from the trailers for this most recent episode that it was mostly about the men of the north yeah. at the 700-foot wall the fighting yeah. the giants and the, and I the zombies. Hate it was, it, it was and entirely I about it. that wall. I don't like that wall. I don't like it in the books. I hate it in the show. I don't like that guy with the kid with the scraggly beard that we're all supposed to like. That I want to get back. Like, uh... Yeah, the fact that he was get, brave, yeah. I want to get back to King's Landing and, and who killed jo- like Joffrey. People. 
I like rich people, and I like I like the fight between uh, between the Lannisters and the Baratheons, and I like people being thrown through moon doors six hundred feet up, and I don't like this wall in the snow. I didn't. It's almost why I didn't watch the first season because the first twenty minutes of the show were set at that stupid wall. So, Jonah, can you defend the wall, or are you with me on the wall? I'm sort of with you on the wall. I was really worried, just knowing where some of your passions lie that you were going to get into an extended metaphor of the wildlings as Palestinians. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to go there. Because um, I, I remember World War Z and their wall. And, you know, so, I mean, there's some similarities there. And, like, last night yeah. there was a lot of talk about how the Northmen stole our land and we're just here to get it back and blah, 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 blah. And that's I, I really where I thought you were going. I, look, like, I, I think the wall's overdone. I also think it's a shame that, you know, because zombies are now so overdone that the sort of the the big sort of sort of Damocles hanging over this entire series has basically been the walking dead coming down from the north and I think that gets a little tired. Frankly, what I want to see is Cersei just getting drunk dishing on people. I mean I <laughs> yeah. love her. And I mean yeah. I loved her since she was Sarah Connor in the in the you know the Terminator TV show. But um Oh that's right. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah she was fantastic yeah. in that. Who but is she? Lena Heavy in the real world. Her name is Lena Hetty. No, no, I mean who is that? Who is Cersei in the real world? Like who is it Hillary Clinton? That's not Hillary Clinton. No, no. No. Who's so ambitious? Who's the most who, who? Well, Israelis Israelis would tell you that it's Sarah Netanyahu. Having said uh-huh. that, I'm not sure that's entirely fair, but you know, she could be one of the the famous uh, Sung sisters of Hong Kong, like Madame yeah. Chiang Kai Shek, yeah. or mm-hmm. or um, you know, or uh, I don't know, Mrs. Ceausescu. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's uh, let's hope not. That's kind right? of a downscale choice. Yeah, but I get your yeah. Right. I um I turn off emotionally and uh, intellectually and in terms of my attention when the the are giants and big monsters, because there are no such things as giants and big monsters. And so I don't like that. I don't like now that. I don't naive, Rob. <laughs> nah. I don't like giants. I like only big monsters. I don't like things that aren't real. I don't like it. I don't like the dragons. I, I, I think don't like the show. Anything. I think the show's biggest weaknesses are sort of its original strengths, which is that whenever it resorts to magic, it yeah. kind of lo- the, the charm of the thing is that it is so full of incredibly cynical people living in a t- fantasy time. And whenever they resort to magic, it sort of takes it out of that and puts yeah, it into I something. Else. I, I don't need to. I mean, I, I I believe that the world, my world, is filled with people who want to chop each other's heads off. I mean, I work in Hollywood. I believe that there is a, a, a town full of Circe's and and that other guy who threw the woman down the moon door. And I, I, I totally buy that. Um, yeah, the guy threw the woman down the moon door. Isn't she? Isn't he the running Paramount right now? <laughs> well, no, because <laughs> he would apparently be a lot more successful. Um, there was a I, moment. I believe I will, all that, yeah. but I don't believe in the, the old big giant. Giant, come on. I mean, really? I don't like that. See, I I, there was a moment on the previous episode that I thought was so, so staggeringly good and, you know, completely unique to the show and just, you know, both heartbreaking and sort of stunning and even slightly profound when – you know, we've been watching the daughter of this tragic house, the the house, the the house of Stark, uh, Arya, the sort of ten, eleven year old daughter who is now who has been you know taken out of her hostage situation. She's being dragged around 
by this um, uh, morally compromised guy, the Hound, Sander Clegane, and he's decided that he's going to take her to her aunt. Um, the name straight. Good Lord. I don't. I, anyway, he's going to take her to her aunt, who is the one who gets thrown out the moon door. Yeah, her crazy God. aunt, her mother, her mother's sister, Lady Lysa, who lives at the uh, you know in this in this uh, battlement, uh, you know, up on the in the airy breastfeeds a ten year old boy. Right, and 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 they as you, as finally, after like you know months, they finally on foot get to the area and the and the area below where they're going to have to start climbing up to get there, and you know they say here you know because the the hound thinks he's going to get a lot of money for bringing her to her aunt, and they say, well, you know, here we are. I'm 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 Arya Stark. I want to see my aunt. And the guy says, I'm sorry, but your aunt died two days ago, committed suicide. And Arya, who has led this absolutely horrifically miserable life, being dragged around, just bursts into despairing laughter. And it was a kind of beautiful coat, you know, that that what this show does at its best is – this revelation of what life is like in a completely immoral universe where there are no rules and children are mistreated and people switch sides and all of that. And here is this sort of little girl who has been, you know, forced to live this life and she appreciates the absurdity of the human condition in a way that no one else on the show yet, yet has. And I really thought it was an amazing little bit. You know, I, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, that's one of the things that what's bothering me a little bit about the show is that for exactly sort of the reasons that you're getting at, people with excessive amounts of honor who stand on principle, things go badly for them, right? I mean, that was sort yeah. of set up yeah. in the beginning by Ned when, when Ned Stark was beheaded, right? And, yep. and, and so, I mean, that was really shocking, right? And then there was, of course, the wedding scene, which we don't have to get into because some people may still be catching up. But now it kind of feels like, oh, man, I like this guy. He's doing something based on yeah. honor. You know it's going to end badly for him. It's sort of like those and, old war movies, like when, the, when, the, when the, you know, the, the kid from Iowa, like, I'm scared, Sarge. Don't be scared. I got to go home to the, the family. I, I got a sweetheart. We're going to get married. Yeah, sure, kid. And he's the first guy to get, get killed. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, exactly. it was always like on Star Trek where you knew someone was going to get it when he was a friend of Jim Kirk's from the Academy. You know, <laughs> oh, look, we were at the Academy together. That was only slightly less fatal than wearing a red shirt. A block yeah, right. of salt. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so I actually think that um, uh, something inspired happened that because this season, because uh, the two the two writers of Game of Thrones know that that after the famous wedding that we can't talk about, that this is where the books and there are two and a half volumes left go totally off the rails. That they now have to like depart from the books and make up their own plot now because particularly the fourth book is there's nothing to it that needs to be ever filmed. It's a total digression. It's a thousand pages of digression. And so they're basically now on their own and they're t- they've set up these characters and they now need to figure out what to do with them apart from George R. R. Martin's, you know, uh, flagging. Are there really two R's? Are those, in his birth certificate, does it actually have two R's? It's like he's a pirate. 
No, I mean, he's you know the what I'm son saying. of a pirate. He's G R R whatever his name is Martin yeah. instead of J R R Tolkien. He's Come from on. Perth. He's from Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Let me tell you, I don't think a lot of people have two middle names. If yeah, you ever the, where, I, I, want the, I want the D O B. I want to see the birth certificate yeah. on that it's, one. Uh, it's uh, it's not. Well, not look, good. my problem with it is it's it's this amoral universe where um, all honor is punished, and uh, and I, I live that every day. I don't need that on TV. So when so the giants and the mammoths and the uh, yeah 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 yeah. Um, I don't feel compelled. I dip into it. I don't feel compelled. I don't know. I got got a really funny email. I don't want to get him in trouble uh, from just right before we came on the podcast um, from a friend of mine who was a high ranking official in the Bush administration. And he had watched it last night and they have. And so he had a good question. He was like, so, you know, they had this thing called, oh, John, you didn't see it. Well, it's okay. Go ahead. A little bit of a spoiler. They have what they call the scythe. And it's this giant honking, nasty you know, a multi-story tall blade that swings like a pendulum along the side of the wall mm-hmm. and cuts anybody trying to climb up it into shreds. <laughs> and and this friend of mine from the Bush administration, he writes to me, he says, first of all, isn't that the coolest weapon ever? And second of all, isn't the failure of the wildlings to know about the scythe the greatest intelligence failure since WMD in Iraq? <laughs> <laughs> uh. Did you, see the, did you see the hearings, the wilding hearings? And so what did you know, <laughs> What did you think that giant chain was for? Well, we, had, we had no knowledge of that, sir. We had no – how are we to know? <laughs> My other – since, since John got to have his, his gripe session, and you've griped about the, 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 the giants, I want a quick gripe about Jamie Lannister's gold hand. Um, he had a very brief moment where he said a hook would be more practical. Right, and now he's spending all of this time learning how to fight left-handed and all that kind of stuff, and he has to walk around with. Can you imagine how heavy a solid gold hand would be on your stump? Right? Why can't that just be for like ceremonial events, and then for like fighting, he have this whole slew of really awesome various attachable blades and hooks and weapons? I mean, that's what he should have. Anyway, that's my little rant. It drives me crazy every time I see that thing. Yeah. Well, so there is the uh, there is our session on Game of Thrones. So now, I guess the final question that comes to us is: Has anybody seen the summer movies? I unfortunately have seen many of the summer movies. I don't know if you guys want to start, and then I will respond. I, I, I have not seen any of them, so the, I will go first, and okay. uh, and I will have <laughs> incredibly uh, well thought out and completely yes. completely strong opinions on all of them. I was happy this weekend. That this tearjerker movie, The Fault is in Our Stars. The Fault in Our Stars, yeah. Which stars no one uh, yes. and is about – is a kind of a love – like the movie Love Story is sort of this doomed relationship between two young people who have cancer. Um, it was a monster hit at the box office and it is – it shows that uh, – and, and you didn't and like I, monsters. It, uh, yeah, it was not any monsters. Uh, and I, I was, I was so gratified to see it. I, I don't. I mean, people seem to think the movie's good, but I, whether the movie's good or bad or high art or not, a a, a a doomed love story in the summer is supposed to be. They 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 they, they should have happened every year. And the idea that Hollywood has only managed to you know to make two or three of blockbusters of this kind since Love Story. Is crazy. It's just a sign that 
the people in this town where I work are fools um, because th- this is money in the bank and has been forever. And you can do a perfectly serviceable doomed love story movie for the summer for when kids are out of school and teens are hanging around the mall um, once a year or at least every other year of, of high quality and make a bajillion dollars. And instead, it's always Spider-Man 9 and The Avengers 5, and the, which, which, by the way, are the same movie over and over again, but not as interesting or emotional and no one's connected to them. Whereas this movie made a whole lot of money the old-fashioned way, and so I applaud it. Well, you know, it's not entirely true that these movies are not made. There's a series of them that have been made over the last 10 years, all of these adaptations of the novels of the guy Nicholas Sparks, which are yeah, which okay. are often doomed, doomed love stories. And when they're good, like The Notebook, which is a good movie with, with Ryan Gosling and, and Rachel McAdams, when they're good, they really click. And when they're not good, they don't, they don't click so much. The Fault in Our Stars is a very interesting story. The guy who wrote this book, John Green, lives in Indianapolis. He and his brother in 2006 um, started to make video logs together on YouTube and completely spontaneously with no promotion or anything. Um, very excited. Uh, Zoe is extremely excited to that's hear about Zoe. this. I'm at the that's office. not Zoe. I'm at the office. No, that's, oh, I mean, that's my dog. dog. That's, that's, that's Rob's dog. I'm sorry. Um, uh, you know, ended up, ended up with millions of followers on YouTube. And he then, without meaning to, became a sort of pop culture phenomenon with teenagers. And then he started essentially selling his books to the people who were watching these video logs. And this book, which came out in 2012, is the best-selling book since the Harry Potter books. And it is entirely spontaneous. It's one of these weird amalgams of new media and very old-fashioned media and he developed this novel based on the life story of somebody who was a big fan of his videos, a girl who had uh, the kind of cancer that the girl, the lead character in The Fault in Our Stars has uh, in this movie. I will find it very hard to see. I lost a family member in the last year to a, a virulent form of cancer. And I have you know daughters like Jonah has a daughter who is not much older than the girl in this movie, and I, I just find, will find it incredibly painful even to you know watch it for, for five minutes. But the people who have made this movie, the sensation is, are in some ways the same kids who made Twilight yeah. a sensation. This is how you build an audience for the future. You build an audience for the future by trying to instruct them that the cinema is a place that can engage them emotionally. But the best superhero movies do that for boys. You know, they end up being these kind of moral pageants about good and evil, mm-hmm. what Westerns were in the 40s. These movies at their best are, you know, now. They're going to run this string out, Hollywood. They're making too many of them. Marvel is now going to make two or three a year yeah. and side movies, and they all do fundamentally, if they work, have the same kind of plot and people are going to get bored of them. And the question is, are they going to get bored in the summer of 2015 or in the summer of 2016? And they're going to be $5 billion of movies worth in the pipeline. But nobody gets bored of a romantic tearjerker. That's what, that's what right. movies are. Right. Well, so, nobody and, nobody says, oh, I don't want to see that movie. It's too sad. I, I, I'm the, the one thing that neither of you guys have mentioned, which I heard on the NPR piece about all this um, on the drive-in. Rhino. Um, I consider it monitor. I monitor enemy broadcast. Um, 
they uh, they said that um, eighty percent, a full eighty percent of the audience was female, mm-hmm. and they finally it's finally dawned. They had some expert on saying it's yeah. finally dawned on Hollywood that uh, you don't have to make all of your movies aimed at at, at teenage and young boys. You can actually aim movies at this other half of the market, which is teenage and young girls. And um, and I think that's sort of what this movie shows, is that you can do that. And it always seems to be sort of weird, because in my experience as a teenager, girls could always drag boys to the movies, right? But the boys didn't necessarily drag girls to the movies. Yeah, but and- that, is, that is exactly the reverse of the Hollywood axiom. The Hollywood axiom was that boys would not see girls' movies, but girls yes. wanting to please their boyfriends yeah, yeah, no, would be that. dragged along to see boys' movies. I don't know where this idea came from except that everybody in Hollywood – I hate to do this because it sounds sort of like I'm joining the you know yes-all-women feminist camp, but – um, you know, Hollywood was run entirely by boys, by men who were, you know, arrested development people who hated women and don't like Isn't them. True. And it's not true. Well, it, it, it's now true it's that, not true. It's true that that was an, that, that, that uh, it's true that that was a was a, a, a business axiom for years and remains so. But you you found often that argument from women who female executives who run uh, Sony and ran uh, univer- run Universal and were high high uh, um, highly you know way way up there executives at twentieth and, and Paramount. Yeah, but that's I mean, because they had to. That's because they had to show that they were as tough minded and you know unsentimental. No, it's, no, it's really not. It's it's because if you spend fifteen million dollars or ten million dollars, I mean, romantic a, a romantic tearjerker is cheap to make. Right, but you, but it's a higher stakes. That's the thing. It's a much higher stakes. This movie is a gigantic hit. Stars nobody. It has right. no stars, but it's still a, a gigantic hit because it's made it's sort of an old fashioned style movie, which is like, well, if you make a really good romantic tearjerker, you're probably get people in the theaters. But but it, but now making a fifteen or twenty million dollar movie is com- absolutely unacceptable. No studio will make will do that because you still have to spend a hundred million dollars to launch the picture. So you're gonna now you're, lo, you're lopsided marketing for a hundred million dollar uh, launch for a twenty million dollar picture. You have to earn so much money back; it's impossible. So it actually, it, 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 in a perverted way, it makes sense business wise. But what it does is it creates this gigantic opportunity because the studios are so ossified and such these giant behemoths, they can't be nimble. They can't respond to stuff like that as fast as they should, and so they just develop these little business plans You're like, well. We know that if we put a superhero and things exploding, they're going to make $100 million in the summer. So we're just going to do that. Right. Uh, that's how we have to make money. Now, right. they're stupid and they're wrong and they're going to mm-hmm. lose in the, in the short run, I think, even. But, um, but it's only because of the way they've developed their business and the way they've developed – what are the above-the-line costs? Meaning what are the talent costs for The Fault is in Our Stars? I mean, zero. Well, they pay those right. kids nothing. Same thing right. with Twilight. Same thing with um, Hunger Games. Right now, I will say this, which is the movie that it crushed uh, in the last uh, over this past weekend uh, was this uh, Tom Cruise 175 million Tom Cruise movie called Edge of Tomorrow, which is a terrible title. It's actually pretty good. I saw it this weekend, and Cruise is very good in it. But of course, that's the interesting story, which is that Tom Cruise doesn't open movies anymore. Nobody opens movies anymore. Stars don't open movies. The the biggest star in Hollywood right now is Seth Rogen. Who no. whose last three four three movies in a row have now made you know will make in excess of one hundred and fifty million dollars. But that's but, wrong too. Biggest star is Sandra Bullock. 
Sandra Bullock, but she, Sandra Bullock she's opens made movies. two. Right. Sandra Bullock opens movies. Melissa McCarthy possibly opens movies. Yeah. We, she has a movie out this summer that will demonstrate it. Seth Rogen is the only male performer yeah, right. now opens movies because Adam Sandler, as has now been proved, couldn't open his last one and his, the one before that. So the situation we're in is that that would mean that the three biggest, uh, you know, two of the three business, biggest stars in the business are women. Um, movies are not being made really to help uh, women because they're still in this, you know, male-dominated pipeline and it's stupid. Now, having but said if that, you were, well, if you were, if yes. you were a, a profit participant in the Tom Cruise movie, or you were, a, or you were the studio behind or the distributor of the Tom Cruise movie, you're very happy today. Because it made eighty million dollars overseas, right? Well, there is well, this whole idea now that the American market. It was said that the it was said that the the movie market um, ten years ago that the that the theater market was just a setup for DVD sales, right? So as long as it made back, you know, true. sort of like helped even things out, then the movie could really explode in DVD sales, and then DVD sales died because of streaming. So now the idea is that American movies, all they need to do is sort of cover some costs in the United States, and then abroad they'll make all this money. Now I'm very skeptical of this because I don't. I bet you that you send a movie to China, and God knows how much you get back. You know, no, no, I, you God, make real money. You make real money, but it's got to be an action adventure picture with lots of big explosions and, and, and very, very, very broad. Emotional, not a lot of chit chat because you, you can't translate that. Right. Anyway, um, although this movie is uh, would be anyway, it's 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 pretty good. And if you like movies like that, this is much better than X Men, and it's much better than uh, the Amazing Spider Man two, and it's the it's the best action movie of the summer of that sort. Anyway, I, I think we are now uh, coming bumping up against. Uh, real life, so I think we're going to have to close. Jonah, do you have any uh, visits, speeches, uh, appearances you want to uh, plug? Uh, no, other than the thing I'm doing in London next week, but that's you know neither here nor there. We have um, listeners in London. Um, I don't. I, it's a it's a Thatcher conference, um, but I don't know if it's open to the public or any of that kind of stuff. So um, okay. I'll I'll just you know. Jonah's not um, in London. Jonah won't be in London. He just thought he was, but now he's not, not going. Yeah, there. yeah. Follow me on Twitter. I'll let you know. <laughs> um, oh, can I say what, one word since I didn't get to do my movie wrap-up? I yes. like Godzilla. Didn't love it. Um, saw a million-dollar like- arm, which yeah. my daughter really liked and the kids really like, and I don't quite understand why. I mean, I, I thought it was fine. Um, I saw the X-Men movie. I thought it was fine. My favorite new TV show, which just wrapped up, is uh, Silicon Valley on HBO, which I think is kind of brilliant. Um, and that, that's it. I'm done. That's great. Okay. Uh, Rob, do you have any, anything you want to uh, push besides the, rev- the brilliant review of the biography of Bill Cosby you will be writing this summer for comic oh, yeah, September I get, issue? Oh yeah. I through that. I, I'm going to decide which, which, which of my little juicy Bill Cosby tidbits I want to share. <laughs> um, well nothing, you know, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just hard at work, uh, um, trying to write and trying to, um, trying to get this TV show uh, launched and um, in its third season and, you know, broke, basically. Yeah, you're broke. You're broke. You're dead broke. I happen to be dead broke, but fortunately, I, of course, will be appearing with Gallagher at the Giggles in West Nyack, New York, <laughs> um, and collecting a huge payday there. Please watch in the next couple of weeks for the July-August issue of Commentary Magazine with the remarkable article by Jonah Goldberg on the book of the, of the supposed book of the year, um, uh, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. Commentary Magazine right now um, has changed its website rules. 
You can get eight visits a month, and then we're asking you to subscribe. Please do subscribe. It's a really good deal. It's a great magazine. If you should, you should subscribe to Ricochet, and you should subscribe to Commentary. Please do. It's very important. We're a nonprofit institution, and we rely on subscribers and people to help us. CommentaryMagazine.com, eight, eight free, and then, and then pay up. Um, thank you very much, you guys. Uh, we will uh, reconvene and reconnoiter when the next time uh, Barack Obama makes a dumb mistake, which you know <laughs> right now could be in about three hours. Right. Susie so. gets off the golf course. Right. <laughs> so thanks a lot, and everybody have a have a have a good rest of the June, fellas. See you soon. See, see you guys. Ya. Bye. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, and now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and rivet and line. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, gee, we looked swell, full of that Yankee-doodle-dee-dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell. I was the kid with the drum. They called me Al It was Al the time Say, don't you remember I'm your pal Buddy, can you spare Ricochet. Join the conversation.